is Adam Keller. What's up, y'all? We're now in overtime, and we have a great one planned for you today. We are uh, talking to Callie Pruitt from the great, um, <clears throat> from the great Apod Latcha podcast. Um, we're going to be uh, going over some of this uh, really cool footage from uh, the. Uh, from the uh, uh, that the pro act hearing where Sean O'Brien is just demolishing, demolishing this anti-union senator from Oklahoma. Really, really cool stuff to see. So yeah, I mentioned earlier in the Tuberville story that March 29th you'll want to check out C-SPAN, and uh, this pro act hearing was another one where it got pretty good. Pretty good TV, <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> yeah, Bernie is. Uh, yeah, he's a guy to make some good TV for sure. So. All right. So, uh, but first, I want to do do this quick because it, it seems like something worth mentioning is that uh, OSHA fines could get a lot bigger for unsafe employers. That's the takeaway from some new rules that go into effect at the end of March. The U.S. Department of Labor announced that its occupational that its Occupational Safety and Health Administration has issued new enforcement guidelines to make its penalties more effective in stopping employers from repeatedly exposing workers to life-threatening hazards or failing to comply with certain workplace safety and health regulations. And so now the OSHA regional administrators, uh, the OSHA regional administrators and area office directors have the authority to cite certain types of violations as instance-by-instance citations for cases where the agency identifies, quote, high-gravity, serious violations of OSHA standards specific to certain conditions where the language of the rules supports a citation for each instance of noncompliance. So uh, they say that those conditions can include lockout and tagout, machine guarding, permit required, confined spaces, uh, respiratory protection, falls, trenching, and for cases with other than serious violations specific to record-keeping. And so when we're talking about instance by instance citations, we just mean that, you know, if they're, uh, let's say, maybe a train derails and releases toxic chemicals. Nah, I mean, now you're really using the imagination. (laughs) Just just go with me down this hypothetical. okay? And and, you know, a hundred employees or community members are exposed to toxic gas. Well. Potentially, you know, and I'm not exactly sure, but 
This is just so that you understand what instance by instance citation is. Potentially before, maybe this, because uh, this was one happening, this was one event, there's only one citation. But when you go, when you do, when you utilize this ability to issue citations instance by instance, then you could say, oh, well, there were a hundred people exposed to this hazardous gas. Well, that's a hundred citations, uh, you know, that kind of thing, right? Or you uh, did not have evidence, you, you did not keep a record of, of fatal accidents, you know, six times, well, that's, uh, and we just found out about it on this one day, well, that's six citations instead of one one citation, right? And, and by issuing multiple citations, they can issue multiple times the maximum penalty. And so we've seen how the penalty for child labor is only... $15,000. That's like the maximum citation that you can issue per instance. And so, uh, you know, and so when you issue it instance by instance, instead of, you know, we, we've got a hundred children. So we're going to issue one child labor violation. Instead, they issue, they do in for child labor stuff, they issue it instance by instance. And so they're going to expand that authority into some other safety and health regulations good uh, news good yeah. news i mean we need a tougher osha that's 100 percent. i mean absolutely we need a tougher osha and more accountability a decision they say to use instance by instance citation should normally be based on consideration of one or more of the factors listed below the employer has received a willful repeat or failure to abate violation within the past five years where that classification is current the employer has failed to report a fatality in inpatient hospitalization, amputation, or loss of an eye pursuant to the requirements of 29 CFR 1904.39. The proposed citations are related to a fatality or catastrophe, and the or the proposed record-keeping citations are related to injury or illnesses that occurred as a result of a serious hazard. So, good news there. Uh, with that, let's get to... Let's get to this uh, this hearing stuff. Uh, anti-workers and bosses... Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Anti-worker bosses and politicians got destroyed in a congressional hearing last week when the U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions convened on the subject of, quote, defending the right of workers to organize unions free from illegal corporate union busting. And so we wanted to share with you some highlights and first up, we're going to play this clip from uh, AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler. She comes out of the IBEW, where she notes just one of, and one of the fundamental problems with labor law, with health and safety standards in this country, is that they are simply not enough to deter businesses from breaking the law. Because when these, because all of these violations are mostly just fines. When we're talking about, even if, if there is even a fine, a lot of times when, uh, when an employer breaks the law in a union campaign, what's the penalty? They have to put a sticky note on the, on the chalkboard or something, right? That's it. They have to put a note in a place of prominence. A lot of times they don't even have to pay a fine. 
And so yes, maybe personally it's embarrassing to have to record a video saying these things that saying that, oh, I broke the law or post this thing in a place of prominence in your workplace. Maybe that's personally embarrassing, but that is not materially deterring to these entities. And that's a fundamental problem. And she illustrates this really well in the hearing. Let's play this clip. All right. Sorry about that, y'all. Yeah, we had a we had a lot of clips who we were struggling to get in this morning, but I think we got it here. Um, if employers break the law along the way, they should be penalized with real financial penalties uh, instead of just a slap on the wrist. Because right now, companies are just, it's a cost of doing business. You know, they hire the union-busting consultants, and they just bake it into their business model. You know, so it, there's no deterrent for them to break the law. So the PRO Act would change that. Uh, the PRO Act also would have uh, give workers access to the back pay, the reinstatement, um, kind of the notice and posting requirements to show other workers that taking the risk is worth it, that they're not going to be uh, penalized in a way that's going to hurt their livelihoods, which is what's happening right now. And right now you actually get a bigger fine for violating fishing laws in many states than you do uh, for busting unions. So. Mm. A bigger fine for violating fishing laws than for infringing on the constitutional rights of your employees. We, we're supposed to, we're supposed to have a constitutional right in this country to freedom of association, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. And these employers are infringing on these constitutional rights with impunity. And as she says, the fine for violating our constitutional rights is less than if you fish too many fish. That's ludicrous. That is absolutely ludicrous that we live in this, that, 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 that we've allowed this to happen. That should absolutely not be the case. But that, you know, that's what the folks in power want. They want a system, really they want a system where there are no laws restraining their activity, restrain, uh, 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 restraining their abuse of us. But if there have to be, they want them to only be fines so they don't have to go in cages like normal people when we break the laws. They only want it to be fines and they want the fines to be minor so that it can just be a cost of doing business. This other one is, uh, uh, we've got this other clip here from Team International President, uh, President of the Teamsters International Union, Sean O'Brien, who recently won an election uh, with the votes uh, by like 60 to 40% with the votes of more than 100,000 Teamsters. Just a really, really uh, uh, fantastic thing to happen there on a reform slate with the uh, um, with the Teamsters for a Democratic Union. He was called to as a witness uh, into this hearing and he got into it with one of the uh, uh, with one of the Republican members, uh, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen from Oklahoma. 
and we're gonna uh, play this and and react to it because I, I got the whole interaction and so there's like five minutes here, but I think it's all I think it's all worth it. I think it's all good. So we're gonna we're gonna play this and kind of stop and start uh, as we uh, as we listen to it. But let's go ahead and play that. Adam. Yeah, and I think this was one of the ones we were you know last minute throwing in here. So you know we'll we'll see what happens when I press play. <laughs> very clear. I'm not against unions. I'm not at all. Uh, some of my very good friends work for unions. Uh, they work hard and they do a good job. Um, yeah, Adam, hold on, wait. That's a good one. That's I have black friends. I can't be. I can't be racist, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's sort of that one, isn't it? I uh, wonder. I wonder who his union friends are. Yeah, I wonder uh, what they think about that. Yeah. Also, they're probably in management for unions. Right. But. Oh, and did you? Uh, this is this is just an aside, but the um, <laughs> the the Republicans and the Democrats both uh had witnesses and one of the republicans witnesses was obviously like the chair the president of the national right to work committee he is the son of a machinist union member interesting crazy back to mullins mullin right mullin M mark, yeah. wayne, mark wayne mullin mark his parents wayne were so mullin. his parents were so wealthy they could afford two first names but now Jacob, I thought he started from nothing. Mm. We'll find out. We're about to get that. But I also want to set the record straight. All three of you guys have talked about employers being intimidated, intimidating their employees. But you guys haven't ever spoke about when the unions try to unionize, the intimidation they have to other people that aren't wanting to unionize. You guys don't mention that. Because, see, I started with nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, I started below nothing. And I started growing this little plumbing company with six employees to now we have over 300 employees. And back in 2009, you guys tried to unionize me. My guys were making money. They were getting paid more than the union halls were paying their plumbers. Our benefits were better. But because we started bidding jobs that were union jobs and winning those, union pipe fitters decided they were going to come after us. They would show up at my house. They'd be leaning up against my trucks. I'm not afraid of a physical confrontation. In fact, sometimes I look forward to it. Uh, I, I just got to say that's interesting framing from someone who is a senator. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, boo who they leaned on his trucks. Oh, and no. The, the below nothing, as Strom pointed out, below nothing. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Below nothing. Now I've I've met folks who came from nothing, but I don't know if I've any ever met any folks who came from below nothing. Below nothing, yeah. And um it's also just a just a total lie. A hundred percent lie. Because he inherited his business from his daddy. Kind of an insult to his daddy. Yeah, I mean, not honestly. You know, of all the, I mean, obviously, there's a lot to be uh, uh, upset about with his commentary. But if I'm the guy's dad, I'm wondering, like, what? You ungrateful little shit! I gave you a business. You were born into wealth and luxury, and you're acting like you had to start from nothing, from below nothing. Yeah. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I mean, could you imagine that? Like, I don't even say, you know. <laughs> Part of my story in my political development and my politicization 
is that, you know, my parents were just workers, but we were comfortable. And so I'm like, and I see people who did not grow up that way. And I think that they should have that. That's part of, and you know, so in my political development, there's like a recognition of, you know, how good I had it and how much I got from the hard work of my parents. Of course I worked hard, right? I mean, I made a 4.0, over a 4.0 in high school. I had good grades part of the way through college and then part of the way, not so much, but I have a college degree. I work and I work hard, right? But of course, a lot of it is my parents' hard work. And I recognize that. Imagine you're this, like you said, imagine you're this guy's dad and you give him a whole business and he's like, oh, I started from nothing. What a, like a gross guy. I'm, that's not my problem. But when you're doing that to my employees, and then when they, when that didn't work, they started picketing our job site saying, oh no, no, they're Came on Mullen for what, <laughs> for what? Because we were paying higher wages because I doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. We can just stop there and say that, say that I doubt it because this is because we know, we know for a fact that union members, on average, obviously it's not always the case, but on average, they make more. And we have already established that this guy is just willing to lie. He's just totally willing to lie. And so, color me um, skeptical. Color me skeptical that his, uh, that, that his employees at his local contracting firm made more than the union plumbers color me skeptical yeah i mean it would be a statistical anomaly to for his non-union employees to have had better pay and benefits not saying it couldn't have happened but you know again the guy inherited a business and he says he came from below nothing yeah the guy is pretending that picketing is like you know a physical confrontation uh Leaning on his right. truck, so... Yeah, it's uh, our constitutional right, actually, to freedom of speech. I don't... You know, we should probably have a constitutional right to lean on this asshole's truck, too. Mm. Um, oh, and in the chat, he mentions... He also says wages. No idea what the benefits offered were. Uh, that's a good, good Interesting, point. yeah. Guys, is absorbent salaries? You talk about CEOs that are making all this money... And what do you make, Mr. O'Brien? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah, I know what you make, because in 2019, your salary was, um, what is this, 193000 I'm sure you got some pay raises since then. I'm going to stop there to say that a hundred and some odd thousand dollars, I mean, that's a very good salary. Um, how many CEOs <laughs> stop at, you know, 200 k Right. CEOs are making millions and multi-millions. And while as a union member, as a rank and filer, I um, sometimes get heartburn in terms of union management and the leaders of unions and some of the high salaries that are in place and, and some of the bureaucracy at the top. That's all. I understand the, the you know, con the criticism of that. I myself can be critical of that. Um but it's in a totally different world right? from situations like Carol Tomei right. uh, at UPS 
compared to the UPS drivers. A totally different world from Jeff Bezos to Amazon warehouse workers. Just a totally, it's not even the same galaxy. Right. I mean, and, and you know, if someone is the head of an organization that has thousands and thousands and thousands of members. 1.3 million. Right. Right. Okay. And, and compared to how CEOs not just get paid, but the benefits they have, the stock buybacks. I mean, it's there is no comparison. Even the most egregious examples inside the labor movement where you have overpaid folks at the top, it's no comparison to private industry. Yeah. And unlike in private industry, we as members can organize and democratically do something about that. If we as members of the Teamsters or the UAW or any other organization, if we have problems with what's happening there, there is at least some capacity to change that. If I think my boss in private industry is overpaid, I don't get to vote on that. Yeah. I don't get to make a resolution on that. I don't get to organize and whip my votes and bring it to a meeting and do something about it. Yeah, when I was and the average UPS driver, the feeder driver makes thirty-five thousand a year. That's and what do you bring? That's to the inaccurate. Table? Hold on a second. That's inaccurate. State no, facts. I've got it right here. State facts. That's inaccurate. The average UPS feeder driver makes thirty-five thousand. If you don't know your facts, then maybe you should. Oh, I, I know him because I negotiate the contract. So I say, I say one <laughs> thing to you. What do you bring for that salary? What do I bring? Yeah. What do you, What do you, What job have you committed, or have you have you uh, uh, started? What job have you created? One job, other than sucking the paycheck out of some other body, somebody else that you want to say that you're trying to provide because you're forcing them to pay dues. And no, then, we don't force. Senator, you've you asked the you're question. You're out of line. Let him Actually, the I question. haven't. And don't tell me I'm out. You're out of line. Don't tell me I'm out of line. Well, you you, you frame, don't tell me. I'm making a statement. You frame the statement. Hold on, tough your guy. Mouth yeah. Because you don't know you're what you're talking about. You're gonna tell me to shut my mouth? Yes, I did. Hold it. Hold it. Tough guy. I'm not afraid of physical. Senator, hold it. But don't sit there and tell me I'm out of line. Senator, you made a statement. You asked the question. I didn't ask a question. I have to stop there because that was just amusing. Uh, all of that was amusing. Yeah. Um, the 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 conclusion of Bernie finally takes his mask off because now he's ready for business. <laughs> like, okay, this shit's getting out of hand. Let me step in here. Uh, but yeah, I I just I get so irritated with that false comparison between union executives and, and business executives. Yeah, and the goal to, the absolute goal to say, oh, you're sucking paychecks when that's actually literally what CEOs do. Like, that is the definitionally, they are sucking the value that we create out of us, and we don't get any say. We don't get any say over that. It's totally out of out of our realm if we're not unionized. Right. And and the thing is, like, all of that value comes from labor. Yeah. Somebody literally labors to yeah. create value. And uh, coincidentally, I think uh, Sam Sachs brought this up uh, when he covered it on Means Morning News, but Teamsters and all the other unions in our movement absolutely create jobs not just by the opportunities they create mm -hmm. with apprenticeship programs and all that, not just by bargaining for other jobs inside their units, but by what you said earlier, the union advantage. We make more money. We have better benefits. We have 
more safe, uh, we have safer workplaces. And as a result, union members go out and grow the economy in a way that non-union workers cannot. So uh, there are a lot of jobs created by uh, Teamsters and all the other unions. You did it. I answered the question. You asked the question. Well, was Let him answer. It was rhetorical. Well, you may think it's rhetorical. It sounded to me like a question. Let him answer the question. I'm not yielding my time to him. So if you're going to let me keep my time, that's fine. You'll have your time. Let him. You ask a question. He has a right to answer that. As far as my salary goes, my salary, if you follow me around, I walk. I actually look at this building. I bet you I work more hours than you do. Twice that's, as many that's hours. <laughs> no, that is that's true. Sir, you don't secondly, know what hard work is. Secondly, if you want to follow yeah. my schedule, be secondly, be, I'll do it in follow. a minute. Secondly, UPS feeder drivers, and you can quote uh, Carol Tomei, who quoted this. They make ninety-three thousand on the lower end. Some I of them make one hundred fifty thousand. I said feeder drivers. Feeder drivers, tractor trailer drivers. Some of them making one hundred fifty thousand dollars per year. Some of them do. And I don't disagree with that. Most of them make over. Most of them actually been there four years. Most of them make over a thousand. Okay. Most of them make over a hundred thousand. So reclaiming my time. I go back to the whole fact that, sir, you haven't created a job. We haven't? You haven't been there. You haven't. Sure we have. You haven't. Sure we have. Tell me one job that you created. What are you, you talking about? Be specific. You're like, an employer? You no, we're not an employer. people? No, but, you know, it's funny. So, no, we, then, we hold create, on. Then, then, we then create opportunity. Jobs. We create opportunity because we, sir, hold, that's, that's we not, hold greedy CEOs like yourself not, accountable. You're calling me a greedy CEO. Oh, yeah, you are. You want to attack my salary, I'll attack yours. You're, what did ahead. you make? What did you make when you owned your company? When I made my company, I kept my salary down at about uh, 50000 a year because I invested every penny into it. Okay. False. Yeah, well, so look, he says salary. So we know, we don't know, and he also says when I made my company. So I don't know if when I made my company is when he, in the, the single year that he inherited his company, maybe he kept his salary, quote unquote, down at 50000 but that's not his total income package, like it is for working people, like it is for working people, right? Because we can see from his financial disclosures that way back in 2012, the first year he was elected to Congress, while he's supposed to be working for us, some, you know, right? He's supposed to be a congressman. He gets salary to be a full-time congressman, $200,000 a year nearly. What was his, just his salary? In 2012, $92,000, $92,000 for his salary, but that's not all of his other income. He reco- he reported in 2012 between $200,000 and $2 million in income in 2012, just 2012, from two family companies, Mullen Plumbing Incorporated and Mullen Plumbing West, and another fifteen dollars to $50,000 from shares he held in a bank. Just in one year from non-salary income. So the idea that he's saying, oh, I kept my salary, I kept my salary. That's BS. Totally BS. Okay. Oh, and here, and here he's at he's acting like, he's acting like, oh, you just hurt my pride. The idea. He's right. That's a hit dog will holler, and that hit dog is hollering. That's all that. Uh, yeah, that total act was. Mm-hmm. You said right, I was out. We're even. We're, he's, even. He's, he's, we're not even. We're not even close to being even. You I think know. it's smart? You think you're funny? 
No, you're, you're not. Do, you think you're funny. No, I never said. I, did I smile? You frame, you frame your opening hold statement. Hold on, hold on. That's the, you frame your opening right. statement no, saying you're a Senator, continue. This, uh, this Senator, is, please this continue your statements. But, sir, this is. I think, I think it's great that you're doing this because Me too. this shows their behavior on how they try to come in and no, demonize I, I, a shot. No, no, and just, they say about intimidation, and it's not about intimidation. This, it's they show your behavior. Yeah, but stay on the issue, please. The issue and is, he, really quick, if you're really says, for the employee. He says... This shows their behavior when they come in and try to unionize the shop. Yes, it shows. Yes, union members are not don't have to quiver in fear of people like him, and that's the thing that he doesn't like. That's uh -huh. one of one of many things is that he is not deferential to his feudalistic position at the top of a company. He doesn't feel the need to quiver in deference before his power. And that's what he doesn't want his employees to feel. He doesn't want his employees to feel empowered to be able to speak to him on an equal level. And so when they get disrespected, they can disrespect him. He doesn't want that. He wants to be able to walk all over his employees and have them take it. Employee. Then why are you against right to work? Why are you against private ballots? <laughs> If you're really about the employee, let the employee make the choice. I'm not anti-union, but when you don't want to have a private ballot, that's not intimidating? That's not intimidating? Why wouldn't you want a private ballot? If that is intimidating the employee. If you don't want a right to work state, don't force somebody to, make, to pay dues to an organization they may not agree with. Don't force somebody to do something they don't want to do. That's called employee choice. If you want to be part of a union, God bless you, be part of a union. I have no issue with that. But don't sit up here and say that an employee is the one that intimidates their employer, their, or their employers are intimidating their employees not becoming a union. Okay, Senator, That's not thank accurate. you. Thank you very much, Senator Murray. <laughs> thank I mean, you it, very much. Yeah. We, this whole hearing is littered with statistics, with individual examples, with cases of how it is Factually the case that employees are illegally intimidated by bosses into not forming unions. That is just actual factuals. Facts don't care about your feelings. That Those are the facts. Those are the facts. And so the idea, the idea that he's acting precious about this is just so infuriating to me. And then trying to com compare union collective bargaining the eradication of right to work with the type of compulsion and coerciveness that bosses employ in union busting campaigns is insulting to the audience. Yeah, it's a false equivalence. And because 100%. Of, yeah. And we've we've gone over right to work several times, but just just to have it in this, all that right to work is right to work is the government coming into the private negotiations of the Workers represented by their union and the employer and saying you cannot have what are called union security clauses. You cannot have in the employment contract that to be employed by this workplace, you do have to pay representation fees to the union because you get the benefits of the union. So you should have to pay for those benefits. In union states, in union collective bargaining states, that is a clause that can be negotiated, can be, doesn't have to be, 
The workers don't have to ask for it. The employer doesn't have to agree to it. Okay? So it's not mandatory. The government's not coming in in these other states and saying, you've got to pay union dues. It's the workers who are saying that anybody, that, that we are as a majority deciding that we want everybody to contribute to our organization for our collective betterment. And these people's argument in any other instance, any other instance, oh, you don't want to have to pay for clothes for your uniform? Get another job. You don't want to have to pay for transportation to get all the way there? Get another job. You don't want to have to pay for the college education required to get this degree, to get this job? Go get another job. But here, in the one instance where an employment requirement will be to the benefit of the worker's power, they're saying, oh no, we shouldn't have to have this. Workers shouldn't have to have that. Workers should not be able to collectively say, we're all going to, as a condition of employment here, contribute to this organization. Workers shouldn't have that power. Bosses can require whatever they want as a condition of employment, but workers can't impose <laughs> potentially any condition of employment. It's just absurd. Yeah, and, and a couple of things to tease out there is that an agency fee is not the same as being compelled to join the organization, right. right? If you're paying an agency fee, because that is in the collective bargaining agreement, that is you compensating for the amount of services that you are still going to be provided, should you request them, and uh, for the contract itself. So, no, you don't have to join, but in those cases, you would have to pay an agency fee, right? Because there shouldn't be someone taking a free ride. Yep. You shouldn't get to benefit from the union's work to negotiate a contract. You shouldn't get to benefit from the union every time you get in trouble and you want someone to represent you. Yeah. And that's what that's about. But, you know, in right-to-work states, uh, they want folks to be able to take a free ride off the union. We've got another clip, but uh, we also have Callie from sure do. Yeah. Latcha in the Zoom. So we're going to get to that in a second, And but we're going to go ahead and go to uh, go to Callie. Um, Absolutely. So a paper mill in Canton, North Carolina, is closing um, after 120 years. After 120 years, and it's closing really, really uh, um, unexpectedly. Uh, really some some shenanigans, it seems like, is going on. And, and uh, this is the hometown of Callie Pruitt. She is one of the co-hosts of the a uh, Appalachia podcast, the A-Pod-Latcha podcast. Um, really great stuff. And so she has been talking about this situation on social media. I think that she's actually in Canton now, uh, going to be reporting on it. And so, uh, Callie, thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, this is such a, an issue close to my heart, near and dear. Um, so I appreciate the opportunity to speak on on my hometown. Yeah, absolutely. And we and like I said, we really do appreciate uh, you taking the time. And um, you know, we're uh, this is you know this is this is exactly the kind of thing that that we want um, to help folks understand. And and so I guess first, can can you tell us what uh uh 
what is the company saying about the closure? What or, or what is the closure going to well, let's start here. What is the closure going to mean for the community? Yeah. Um, so the Canton paper mill is operated by Pactive Evergreen um, and it has been since 2007. It's gone by a couple of different names. They've been mergers and sellouts and things, but it's been kind of in the same hands of this company since 2007. Um, and the mill has been the centerpiece of the town, what keeps it alive for nearly 120 years. And it's the employer of uh, over a thousand union workers in the area. What this means to the community, though, when we look at the just the raw numbers, um, according to the Haywood County Economic Development Director, uh, his name is David Francis, they've looked at what this means for the community in the region, uh, Western North Carolina region, and the company is saying that, oh, the payroll is only $140 million a year. It's not going to be that big of an economic impact. We know that's not true. Um, the ripple effect is estimated to be closer to $500 million in a rural area of the country um, mm. that already has suffered so much uh, in the last couple of years. So not only is that the monetary damage that we're going to see, um, but the community itself is really, I mean, a fifth of the town of Canton is employed at the mill. And that doesn't include their families, their spouses who work at the elementary schools or uh, the bank or the hospital. So um, the, the community is, is certainly devastated at this at this moment i think that it's a time of of crisis but they're also really trying to come together um the mayor zeb smathers is uh, a good friend of mine but also um he is uh just for a little background on where this is positioned in the world um so he is a democratic mayor of this small town uh in a deep red pocket of western north carolina so um a lot of people will say oh Asheville's kind of the hub of of liberal liberalism in uh, in Western North Carolina. Well, uh, this is about 30 minutes west of Asheville. And it, the last two representatives before the representative now were Mark Meadows, who we all know um, has a lot of issues. And then after that, it was Madison Cawthorn, uh, who was just ousted. And now we have Chuck Edwards, who is really kind of an unknown. And in the first two days of this crisis was nowhere to be found, was not answering um, the, the calls from uh, local papers or anything like that. And only after incredible public pressure did he come out and ask the SEC to investigate some of the things that have been happening that we can get into. But so if you're just generally asking the impact on the community, it is it is enormous. That I mean, the on Twitter, uh, Max mentioned that, you know, I am uh, I'm reporting for in these times in the real news about a situation that, that's kind of similar in that this is a, a, a paper town, been a paper town since the 1880s in Jay, Maine. <clears throat> but for them, it has been a lot less sudden, right? There were at one point two paper mills in this town that employing, uh, I think as many as 3000 people They're directly employing. And then at, like you mentioned, you know, you've got the families of these people that are just supported by their income. And then you've got the families of these people that, <clears throat> you know, work at the schools, work at, you know, uh, the grocery stores, the local, um, restaurants and things like this. But, uh, it has through the years, like in 2009, one of the mills shut down. There's been several rounds of layoffs. And so the the final conclusion is, is coming now. The last roll of paper 
came out of the mill on Wednesday at like 1 a.m. or something, but only 200 people are going to lose their jobs <clears throat> right now. And so it's really been more of a death by a thousand cuts for this community. Um, and whereas Canton, North Carolina, is that there's just no time to adjust to a reality of of thousands of people, you know, <laughs> a thousand people losing their jobs, five hundred million dollars of economic impact being uh, uh being just taken in a in the blink of an eye from a community. What yeah, are the, absolutely yeah? I oh, mean, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, you go ahead. So, I mean, this is really, uh, it's kind of unprecedented how quickly this has been. I've talked to other people who have experienced mill closures in the area, um, you know, because it's it, there have been declines in mill operations around Western North Carolina for a while. And a lot of those people had multiple years mm -hmm. to prepare for a closure. Um, this mill, it was announced last Monday to uh, about a, a group of about 40 workers. Um, and so many of these people learned through social media or through the news that they've lost their jobs. So they didn't even give a full briefing to all the workers. Wow. Um, and then they said, oh, and it's going to be closed by mid-May or June. Three months. I mean, uh, like th that is that is truly unfathomable that they would give such short notice. And it is really, really unprecedented. Mm. Yeah, uh, it it's. It's just, it, I mean, it's unfathomable. I mean, I, and so what are the, what is the company saying is the reason for this, that it's coming so suddenly, you know, how, how are they justifying this? The company is saying that it is just the the way that things go, that this is how the market is adjusting. This is how their company is adjusting to the demands of the market. Um but that doesn't track for me. Uh, it's it's very, to me, that's very fishy. It doesn't, you know, this mill was profitable. Um, they, they were, this company is is not suffering. They are making millions um, and, and in profits, they're doing very well. And this company, you know, this mill in particular, they make things like Starbucks cups and McDonald's huh. cups and, you know, things Well, now, that, Kelly, that, I don't, I'm, I'm not really seeing a whole lot of those right now. I think, you know, I mean, we'd be fair to be fair to the company. Right. I mean, Starbucks, their right, business is yeah. not booming right now. Right. I mean, <laughs> if this is something that every every person in America has had their hands on something that has come out of North Carolina, Canton, North Carolina. And so when when you talk about the, the, the economic side of this, it just doesn't track for me. What tracks for me is that this is the nuclear option in union busting. And by that, I mean, it came out in February that the the company was going to idle one of the four major paper making machines in in the mill. This comes after the union has been without a contract since May of 2022. They voted down two contracts last year and they were still in negotiations. To my understanding, there were no threats of strikes yet. That was not even in the cards. Um, from what I have read from the union leaders, they really thought that they were going to reach a resolution. However, in February, doing this, this idling of this machine, it was kind of seen as retaliation. Um, but it was in a, in a more vague fashion and it wasn't widely reported that this had to do with the union. Now, when we look at this in full context, we see, then this is, this is kind of where the, 
bad corporate behavior comes in for me. So um, it came out two days after the the announcement of, of the closure that four members of the company executive leadership had offloaded more than 58,000 shares of company stock on March 2nd, which wow. was five days before the announcement and before the price of shares did go down due to the news. So these four leaders, I looked them up. Um, this is the CEO of the company, the CFO of the company, the COO of the company, and the person who delivered the news to mm. the workers who offloaded these shares. And I looked at, you know, you can look at the the trading and, and see uh, whether they were scheduled in advance, because, you know, if, if they were scheduled in advance, you know, then it, it doesn't give the same kind of whiff of insider trading than if they were just sold on the spot. Um, they were not scheduled in advance. Rather, they were they were not they were not planned. These people just were like they probably heard this news, said, I got to get rid of some stock. Um, and so this implies that these company executives used insider trading tactics to benefit on the decimation of a mm. town so this this to me looks like far more like union busting because they didn't want to deal with these the the union contracts anymore and so they went nuclear mm. and what were the do you have a good sense yet of what the contention was in the negotiations you know obviously there was there, there was some amount of of back and forth with these people uh, voting down the contracts. Do you do you have an understanding of what the workers were unhappy with? So it it seems that when I well, from what I've read, it seems that the the workers were kind of just unhappy with the with the pay, um, and they had voted down two of the uh, of the contracts that that were did not have a bump enough in in pay. I mean, we all know that wages have been stagnant and and really unmoving, and so this has been affecting the mill as well. And so I think that workers were frustrated that they're working these long hours. They are benefiting this company. The company is turning major profits and they're not seeing it at their kitchen table when we have inflation and, and post pandemic world of last year and this year. So it's my understanding that it had a direct correlation to uh, being able to get the, the, the raises that they deserved. Yeah. Is the plant moving to another location? Is the production moving to another location or are they just, ending the production of, of these these materials that is what it seems um there has been no reporting no news on on moving this and it's my understanding that this mill is also it's not an obsolete mill i mean there have been questions about whether or not because this is such an old operation whether or not these these paper making machines that they have are just obsolete from what I understand, they're not, and they're still very profitable and useful machines, um, which is yet again, it doesn't make quite, an, it doesn't make the sense that people would say uh, that the company, that the company would say that it's like an economic reason, um, but they are not moving their operations elsewhere to my understanding, which means that, you know, these folks 
are either going to have to face uh, moving from their communities that they've, many of them have been there for generations. Um, I mean, Canton is a very tight knit community. um, One that has suffered tremendously in the last couple of years. If you recall uh, in, in late 2021, there was a devastating flood that killed several members of the town, flooded out the Mm. entire downtown area, flooded the mill. um, And there've been, such incredible strides toward recovery when it comes to uh, rebuilding Canton and having, we called it the Canton comeback. And um, so they've suffered so much in the last couple of years and we were seeing light at the end of the tunnel. And so this, this loss is so devastating to the community. I mean, you have fourth generation mill workers who are now going to have to face leaving their communities that they've been in for generations or, you know, finding some other way to earn their living. And many of them have, you know, a lot of mill workers didn't go get a, a secondary education because they knew and that the mill was going to be what it was going to provide. And um, so they, they have a very specific skill sets that are that are, you know, for production and for <laughs> mill work. And it's just it's really, really devastating. What have what's been the uh, representatives' response in the community? You know, the city council, the, the the mayor. You know, maybe any of the federal delegation. Has there been any response from them? Yeah, absolutely. So the the mayor of Canton, North Carolina, I think has done a phenomenal job in trying to get the word out about this and trying to mobilize the people in the community um, to fight for their themselves and to fight for the community. So uh, Zeb is pulling no punches. Um, he has called the corporate executives cowardly um, and called their called their actions sickening. Um, he is is very public about how um, how how really cruel that this this closure has been to the community and very open about what he's experiencing as the mayor you know having grown men and women in his office crying their eyes out because they don't know what to do having little kids come up to him on the street and say i really don't want to leave my school i have friends here Uh, i mean this is not just about it's not just about the the workers. It is about their families as well. And and that's something that I think that Zeb has really gotten out there is that that this is an entire community that we have to stand up for. That this isn't this that of course that we have to stand up for the union workers, that we have to stand up for the people losing their jobs, but this goes so much deeper into our community. Um so he's done a fantastic job. As far as the federal delegation, um well, I'll actually take a step back uh, to the state delegation. So um, I, I spoke specifically on on uh, Monday night with Anderson Clayton, who is the newly elected chair of the Democratic Party in North Carolina, um, and alerted her to this news uh, as quickly as I had heard it within the hour that it dropped. Um, and so I know that the the party I, I had let them know. I said this this can't be something that that the party does not step in on. This is an opportunity. Um, um, to stand up for for unionization in North Carolina because we know North Carolina is one of the least unionized states in the whole entire country and losing these kind of jobs in the, in the thousands is an, an, a phenomenally bad loss for unions right. in North Carolina. 
So um, I know that the party is aware and acting on it. And um, I, I had asked that they make a statement. And the next day, uh, Governor Cooper put out a statement saying that he was looking into what was going on in Canton. So we know that the state party and that the governor have eyes on, on what's going on. As far as Representative Chuck Edwards, the only thing that he has put out, he's done no interviews, really. He has not been a, a forward-facing voice on this, which is very disappointing, but not shocking based on the last two representatives that we've had. Um, but he has asked, uh, officially asked the SEC to investigate the insider trading allegations. Um, so, uh, I mean, that is, in my opinion, the absolute bare ass minimum that he could yeah. do <laughs> right. um but uh i i do feel that our local leaders especially zeb um are not going to let this go yeah are there any when does the mill actually has it already closed or or uh when does it close no, they they have said that they're aiming for mid-May or early June. So we don't even have a clear timeline on on when it's going to close. And I guess with the news being so new, uh, the, there are probably not any talks of buyers of the mill, of other companies being potentially interested in buying the in buying the mill, are there? Not other companies, but you know, one thing that I think is very interesting um, is that there have been a lot of of rumblings of the workers banding together to to make it a co-op. Um, yeah. This mill has has been a co-op in the past. In they the wow. workers bought the mill in 1996, I believe, um, and that was they they held it until 2007 when they sold it um, to uh, the Pact of Evergreen Company. So to me, that's the most exciting option um, uh, when when I look at, at what is ahead of us. And I know that there, I mean, that has been kind of the primary rumbling that I have heard. Mm. Um, and, and I think that there's an appetite for that in the community because... I mean, let's look, let's just look at the history of corporate exploitation in Appalachia from the coal mines to the timber industry. It has been ongoing and relentless for over a hundred years. And the idea of a community taking hold of their own destiny mm -hmm. is really appealing to them right now. And, and it's really, it's something, being able to count on your neighbors instead of count on corporate overlords is, is something that I think people are very interested in. So to me, that is the most exciting option that I've heard on the table. Well, great. Yeah, yeah, that sounds I, exciting to me for sure. Absolutely. And I got to say that I think that is uh, a viable solution. I think maybe the city could possibly help out. I mean, potentially, or the, you know, the state in some way. I mean, there is eminent domain laws. Um, maybe there could be some assistance in financing such as, you know, a, a plan like that. Uh, maybe even the unions, you know, even at the national level. To me, this is this is something that Everybody involved has to has to really, you know, plant their flag and say, we can do better than this. And we can't yeah. just be held hostage. We can't have entire communities held hostage by these corporations who can just, you know, take it away like that in an instant. So I am, despite how terrible the story is, I'm very, very glad you said that here at the end to to give us some idea that workers are actually having these conversations. Uh and I can just say from my own point of view, but probably for a lot of others uh, listening, that 
there are a lot of us workers who fully cheer on that effort, who support that effort, who send our solidarity, and uh, would love to see that kind of initiative. And I think, you know, with the right coalition, maybe it's possible. And, and that could be a, you know, a game changer for the next one somewhere else in somebody else's community. Uh, so I really, really, really hope <laughs> hope that, you know, that is, that g- gains some momentum. And if there's anything that we can do in Alabama to kind of spread the word or, you know, just cheer y'all on, we're all about that. Yeah, I definitely, I will keep y'all updated um, as much as I can on this story. This is so close to my heart and right. and I, I want to keep, you know, folks updated. And, and this is something that I would like to see in my community too. You know, this is what, this is the kind of people power that I want to tell my kids about. Um, and say that that the people you come from are resilient and and are strong and have power over their own destinies. And that's something that I think can be an inspiration to other people. Um, and we will be fighting for that for the foreseeable future. Callie Pruitt, uh, Canton, North Carolina native, host of the Ape Latcha podcast. Thanks you. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank y'all. Thank you. Hey, before you go, tell us where can folks get plugged in and follow your work? Yeah, so you can follow us at uh, at Podlacha on all platforms, um, and you can follow me on Twitter. I've been posting a lot of updates about Canton, and it's just Callie Pruitt, C-A-L-L-I-E-P-R-U-E-T-T. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, folks. Yeah, definitely check that out. Uh, follow her. Uh, follow Apod Latcha on Twitter. All that good stuff. And um, <clears throat> we might be having a. I spoke to her, and um, yesterday, and we might be running an article from her on this uh, on what's going on. So definitely. Yeah, uh, that would be fantastic. Uh, you know, there's some good discussion going on in the chat about kind of the practical aspect of of the workers taking over or purchasing the plant because of course you got to have customers right and and as Strom points out there's very likely to be a corporate boycott so to speak and it may be difficult to maintain uh any sort of sustainable business model i don't know um i think those are all valid concerns for sure yeah, I think that, well, I mean, she said that it, it was a co-op from 96 to 2007, so I wonder that, what it was. That, right, that, that that could be an advantage as there are folks around, first of all, who, who've been there, done that, but also mm-hmm. they clearly had some form of a business model during that time. Right. So, you know, perhaps there's there's a way, um, you know, and if there's a, a way, a coalition of the workers and their unions with, you know, some allies in government could could do something. Yeah, uh, and you know, she said that one of the things that they produce is like Starbucks cups. And well, if Starbucks workers uh, get enough power in the company, then they can start trying to shift the company. You know, ensuring that the company stays with this with this supplier, right, to support these. Yeah, workers, you know? yeah, and and uh, and the other thing I would say is um, they have to. They have to have some kind of punishment, right? There has to be punishment of corporations who behave this way, Uh, and especially if there was insider trading there. So, you know, that's something also that I think folks can be pushing for. 
Um, the state spends a lot of money on economic development. The state uh, gives up a lot of money on tax uh, tax rebates and tax incentives and subsidies and things of that nature. And the more we as working people can shape that to reward unionization and to reward uh, the folks who are doing the right thing and punish those who are not, uh, I think we're going to be a lot better off. And, and yeah, as you point out, it's it's all about power and, and more power we can build as a movement. So, yeah. Um, Mel Sutton in the Facebook chat says, check out Paper Town by Balsam Range on YouTube. And I forgot to mention this while Callie was here, but that was actually, um, that's actually her dad that wrote and sung that. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Yeah, well, so, you know, uh, there there was some, uh, you know, some some talk in the chat about, you know, about power. And that is that was that was the subject of the last clip that I wanted to play from this hearing on um, the rights of workers to organize unions. Um, before Taft-Hartley, workers had the right and it, and it seems to me that it is that that, you know, if we were interested in actually, you know, like a, you know, a textualist understanding of the Constitution <laughs> of, uh, you know, that workers ought to have the right to strike. Um, and before Taft-Hartley, that right to strike included the right to intermittent strikes, and it included the right to secondary strikes and secondary boycotts. And Taft-Hartley made that illegal because it gave too much power to the workers. Or rather, it's not, no, it, let me retract that. It allowed workers to exert too much of the power that they hold. Because it's not like when workers do intermittent strikes or when workers do secondary strikes, that somebody is coming down from on high and bequeathing them with this power. Rather, it is the workers exercising power that they have. Right, right. It's the workers making use of the value of their labor in broader and broader situations. And as far as I'm concerned, that is our constitutional right. When we talk about our right to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of association. I think it is our constitutional right to strike, and that includes inter includes intermittent strikes and secondary strikes. It Taft should. Taft-Hartley made that illegal. And the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which, to be clear, we've got no illusions will pass, certainly under this Congress and probably under even a Democratic Congress. But... Um, if passed, the PRO Act would make it make them legal again. It would allow workers to use more of the power that they have. Uh, it would not employ the, you know, the force of the state to tamp down on those activities. Secondary strikes and intermittent strikes. And so in this hearing, Senator Cassidy asks the... Um, the for, uh, a Morgan Lewis attorney <laughs> and a former NLRB chair under, I think, President Bush, what the impact would be about uh, if workers were again allowed to conduct intermittent strikes and secondary strikes. And 
it's f uh, and and why that would be bad. And I wanted to play this clip because it, it's fascinating how the conversation is just a naked power analysis. There is no attempt to frame this in, you know, this is demanded by the Constitution, by liberty or freedom. It is just an analysis that if we allow workers to use this much of their power, that would be bad for us. Let's play that clip. Of current law precedent establishes that you can't do intermittent stoppages or secondary strikes, but the PRO Act allows that to occur once more. Why were these originally outlawed, if you will? Well, they were part of the, I think, con congressional uh, uh, debate about where the balance of labor power should be between employers and, and unions. And I think that the, uh, the balance was that those types of job actions are really destructive to businesses. Um, and that and our law in this country has always been that if you're going to strike, you're going to strike once. You have to stay out and strike uh, and not have intermittent types of uh, strikes. But it strikes me that doing intermittent and secondary would be a very a highly effective tool to bring a company to its knees. But if there's going to be collateral benefits from, as being described, clearly that would be collateral damages, right? That could affect the whole ripple effect. Mr. Mix, any comments on that? Yeah, absolutely. That would open up a whole new avenue of, of labor protests and strikes, the potential strikes, where you go, you don't target the, the original target of the, of the operation, you target their customers, and you go to their place and shut them down, and the, the obligation is... So the employees is, of those companies would be adversely affected absolutely. because their businesses could be brought to their knees, even though they had nothing to do with the primary. Absolutely. That was the that was the intention of outlawing the secondary boycott. That's pretty clear. And I would just say, in in, the, in this economy with this supply chain issues, that could be devastating. It's devastating to the bosses. Yeah. It's devastating to capital. And I think that, uh, I mean, they they are at least admitting that. Yeah. Uh, give them that much credit for being uh, fairly straightforward about. This is about power, uh, and we're not going to allow workers to be able to exercise that kind of power because it would be too effective. Yeah, it would be bad for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, this comes up a lot because folks will say, you know, we need to have a general strike. We need to get all the unions on board. Well, you know, this is exactly the type of obstacle we're talking about as to why that, right. you know, Obviously, there are a lot of reasons why that would be difficult, but that's, you know, on a most basic fundamental level, it's illegal and, you know, would, would be quite the lift to be right. willing to go against the law in that capacity um, for us to be able to pull off a general strike involving multiple labor unions would, would definitely require a movement big enough and strong enough and with enough resources to be able to sustain a full frontal assault from the government trying to shut them down, basically. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of general strikes, though, uh, one is happening in France. Or very, very different uh, <laughs> set of labor relations and laws in France. Absolutely. Um, so in France, much more explicitly, although, you know, R Republicans, despite their protestations, do very much want to cut 
retirement benefits here in the United States, um, but they have been backed into a corner. They're on the de defensive right now about that. But in France, uh, Emmanuel Macron is interested explicitly so in cutting retirement benefits by raising the retirement age from 62 to 65, I think. Yeah, I believe and, that's right. And so uh, the unions are really pushing back against that. And uh, we've got a clip from Means Morning News about what's going on in France. So let's play that. As U.S. lawmakers consider raising the Social Security retirement age from 67 to 70, workers should take notice of how similar legislative proposals are being received across the Atlantic in France. Unions are engaged in another day of mass protests across the country to defeat pension reforms. French President Emmanuel Macron wants to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 years old. He's hoping to finalize the change by next month. But the country's unions are trying to make sure that doesn't happen. Since the reform proposal was introduced, the country has been rocked by rolling general strikes that have snarled transportation lines, closed schools, and shuttered ports. Tuesday's actions, which involved upwards of 2 million people, according to the unions, also targeted oil refineries. There were reports that workers blocked deliveries, and there are concerns France could be hit with a petrol shortage by week's end. According to public polling, two-thirds of French citizens support the ongoing protest against Macron's retirement reforms, and the unions say they're willing to continue their open-ended strike actions until they win. So there we go, folks. That's what that's exactly the kind of thing that, you know, that people talk about needing in the United States, and we do need it, but just a really, really radically different kind of uh radically different labor relations there right and and you know i think the working class in france has a lot more experience and practice and right. in, uh in militant tactics and in fighting back and in being willing to shut down their government uh they've had quite a few governments over the years and uh quite a few general strikes quite a few labor uprisings uh so it is a little different and uh but i do think that american workers should pay attention um, I am an internationalist. I believe that workers of the world have more in common with each other than we do with the bosses and politicians of our own country. I think that what happens across the world is relevant to us. Um, I think it's easy to get in our little worlds and, and think about our own communities and, and neglect how we are all connected. This is a globalized economy. Uh, capital certainly doesn't, you know, respect mm. borders. Right. Um, so what happens in Europe, what happens in Latin America, what happens in Asia absolutely has an impact on the United States. And of course, the United States being the world's uh, biggest superpower and biggest economy, it's, um, you know, what happens here is relevant for them. So, yeah, I think it's, it's important that we be internationalist. I think it's important that labor show support and solidarity to our brothers and sisters across the world and uh, support them in their struggles as hopefully they'll support us and ours. You know, it's two of America's closest allies, the UK and France, are seeing some massive labor unrest. And, you know, as you mentioned in, in France, it's about the, uh, the neoliberal Macron government going after their pensions. 
which have been hard fought, hard victories that they secured those pensions for people. So, you know, the French are prone to fight back. That's what they're doing. And we've seen it in the UK as well. There's been a strike wave from sector to sector, industry to industry. A large number of workers either have been on strike or currently are on strike. Um, and I, I am not sure what the latest development is on this bill, but I know that just like U.S. courts and politicians have been pushing back on our American labor movement with restrictions to the right to strike and proposed restrictions on the right to strike and picket, um, conservative party, the Tories in Britain, have been taking a similar approach. And I know that uh, they actually had put forth a bill that would just really devastate the ability of labor to go on strike and demonstrate. So I'm not exactly sure where that's sitting in Parliament. Um, I know that it was so bad that actually right before Marty Walsh resigned, he gave a statement saying that uh, denying mm. denying support for the legislation. I remember that. <clears throat> I remember that because it was very strange seeing that because it happened almost immediately after he did this statement about how like it's important to you know protect the right to strike after he had support, supported right. Biden. Yeah, yeah, because exactly. That's uh, looking back here from the Guardian. It says, meanwhile, number ten. Uh, hit back at the comments from Washington saying far more restrictive rules were in place in many U.S. states and that Pro President Joe Biden himself had blocked a national rail strike, which, you know, they ain't wrong. Right. Um, but claiming that your anti-union, anti-worker law is not as bad as America's broken labor law isn't really saying much. No. Uh, the United States is an international disgrace when it comes to labor law. And it's disappointing, though not surprising, to see the Tory government trying to follow the U.S. in this race to the bottom for the global working class. So um, send our love and solidarity to the striking workers in uh, the U.K. and as well in France, wishing you much success to beat these, uh, these really vicious attacks against your security and retirement. Defend those pensions. Uh, teachers and nurses and others in UK, I hope that you can uh, really build enough strength to turn this Tory government around and kick them out. You know, I, I'm disappointed that Labour is uh, not really a viable opposition anymore, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So um, that is not good for uh, the, you know the Labour movement in in the UK. The Labour Party there seems determined to be uh, as bad as the Democrats here. So we'll see. We'll see. You know, by no means am I an expert in, in you know, international labor news. But, um, you know, I thought it was important to put that out there. And it's important to reflect on how we are connected and and learn from other workers and how they're mm -hmm. fighting back. Uh, Sid in the chat says, my 80-year-old Democrat landlord that I live with agrees with Nikki Haley and Meatball Ron DeSanctimonious that the retirement age needs to be raised when my dad <clears throat> probably has to work the rest of his life to pay off the debts incurred, getting our green card, paying taxes on income he wasn't getting. Uh, really, yeah. I yeah, mean, it's... It's the kind of folks that, you know, these... these well, it's a are, landlord. Yeah, and it's a landlord. <laughs> um, yeah. It's a landlord. And, and someone, uh, Infinite Content, mentioned that the raising the retirement mm, age yeah. has a racist component to it because the average life expectancy of black men in the U.S. is 66. They want to raise the age to 70. 
Um, obviously the math does not add up there. So, um, you know, it's the, the attempts to end retirement security is not being stopped by borders. You know, capital is fighting back all over the ruling wealthy, powerful elites all over the world are, are fighting back. Um, I think in the midst of the pandemic, there was maybe some shifts around the balance of power and maybe workers had a little bit more bargaining power for a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they're doing everything they can from the Federal Reserve to the French government uh, to, you know, the idiots in Montgomery. They're doing everything they can to fight back and to, to keep workers uh, exploited and oppressed. Yeah. Uh so for the rest of this, for the rest, let's uh, let let's hit this IATSE update real quick, and then we can uh, take a look at this uh, Jerome Powell clip and this Norfolk Southern clip, and then sure. we'll leave the XL XFL stuff since we put out an article on. Yeah, it. yeah, and so I do want to mention um, since it is kind of breaking news that the XFL players are unionizing. Uh, if you go to tvlr.fm, I believe it's still the main story that's up. Yep. Uh, y'all check it out and uh, tell me I'll what you think. I'll put it in the chat. Yeah, tell me what you think. Uh, really excited to see the players there unionizing. We spoke with the USFL's union uh, a couple months ago, and so I followed up with him to you know see how things were going with the XFL. It seems like it's going really well. I think they you know, expect an easy victory at the election. And uh, actually, so far, the XFL has not really been fighting back. Mm. So that's good to hear. Um, You know, I think part of it is because of the industry it's in. They are trying to have a good relationship with the NFL. And uh, obviously, the NFL does have a union and, um, you know, must negotiate with that with the NFLPA. So we'll see. So, yeah, check that out. I uh, also have an update for IATSE. Um, listeners probably know I am a member of IATSE right here in Huntsville, IATSE 900. Just got made the political coordinator recently, so there's another thing, uh, another reason for me to keep in touch with what's happening at the uh, international level. Uh, but we had some big news come out from the international in the video effects industry, the special effects industry. Uh, VFX IATSE 2022 Rates and Conditions Survey uh, was put out just last week, and it paints an industry in crisis, underscores the mandate to unionize. So VFX workers are an increasingly large component of the entertainment industry. And of course, the entertainment industry is an increasingly large component of our economy. Uh, So there was this in-depth study on workers' pay and working conditions in the VFX industry that IATSE did, and uh, they put out the results Wednesday, March 1st. Some of the highlights, an overwhelming majority of VFX workers feel that their work is not sustainable in the long term. For VFX workers employed directly by film productions, only 12% have health insurance, which carries over from job to job. And only 15% report any kind of employer contributions to a retirement fund. On average, 70% of VFX workers report having worked uncompensated overtime hours for their employer. 
75% of VFX workers reported being forced to work through legally mandated meal breaks and rest periods without compensation. The majority of onset VFX workers reported working in conditions they felt unsafe in. A further 75% of VFX workers employed by the major film studios had no access to any employer-provided training or educational resources. Only about 1 in 10 VFX workers felt able to individually negotiate viable solutions to these challenges with their employer. Honestly, I'm curious who the 1 in 10 is. Um, IATSE International President Matthew Loeb said, quote, These results are alarming but not surprising. Despite record growth in visual effects as a sector of the motion picture and television production industry and insatiable demand for labor in this field, too many VFX workers are struggling to make ends meet, are working grueling and unrealistic hours, often without overtime pay, and broadly aren't receiving the benefits and workplace protections they deserve. Benefits and protections their unionized co-workers in IATSE already have and depend on. No one in show business should be treated as a second-class citizen and denied a voice in their workplace simply because they have three magical letters before their job title. These findings underscore not just an urgent need for VFX workers to join together and organize to address long-standing sector-wide issues, but a mandate for IATSE to deploy its resources and support this campaign unwaveringly. Uh, just as a reminder, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, IATSE, is a labor union representing over 168,000 technicians, artisans, and craftspersons in the entertainment industry, including live events, motion picture and television production, broadcast, and trade shows in the United States and Canada. You can uh, go to IATSE.net to find the entire survey. And I also wanted to point to a recent article by Alex Press with Jacobin. Uh, Alex spoke to a couple of the organizers in the VFX industry, so it gives you a little bit more background on the uh, some of the issues discussed in that survey. Awesome. Uh, let's take a look at... Uh, there, was so, there was so much... There's so much good TV coming out of the u.s senate right now <laughs> yeah yes there actually was there there really was a lot happening in dc um let's take a look at this uh this inflation stuff first i guess sure um the federal reserve has nothing to say to the millions of people that it wants to make unemployed and no plans to avoid a recession that's the takeaway from uh, the Federal Reserve's chairman, Jerome Powell's testimony in front of Congress last week. And so let's play this interaction between him and Senator Elizabeth Warren where this becomes clear. We are taking the, the only measures we have to bring inflation down. And putting 2 million people out of work is just yeah, part of the cost, and they just have to bear it. Will, they, will, will, will working people be better off if, if we just walk away from our jobs and, and inflation remains well, 5 me... 6%? Yeah, he says, the only measures we have. He said, would the American people be better off if we just walked away from our job? Uh, very much, potentially. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Because if the only tool that you have is a hacksaw 
then maybe you ought not be trying to, uh, I don't know, lay concrete. If the only tool you have is a hammer, maybe you ought not try to perform brain surgery. Maybe you ought to hand the job to somebody else whose tool matches the job better. And that's the issue here with what the Federal Reserve is doing with their interest rates. Because it is true that raising interest rates is really one of the only measures that the Fed has to combat inflation, but they aren't the only, the, the Fed aren't the only people that can combat inflation. Nixon used price controls, let's remember. I mean, and, I mean, uh, you may be bringing this up later, but I have to say that we have had Senator Bernie Sanders, among others, calling for windfall profit taxes, right? So there are already things out there in history and in current conversation, current legislation. So to pretend as if we have two options, right? And this, and, and they do this all the time, but you know this false dichotomy that we only have two options. Well, you can choose to have, you know, unsustainable inflation. Or you can choose to tank the economy and lay a, p a bunch of people out of work. Yeah. And you just pick your poison, uh, which, you know, if I accept that is true, what does that say about your system? What does that say about your system? If, if you are presenting that American capitalism has two options, the inflation is going to be so high you're going to struggle to pay for food, or we're going to have to lay off another 5-6% people of the workforce and lead us into a recession. Yeah. If, just... if that's truly the only options we have, then maybe the system itself is the problem. Yeah. And, you know, just, just to put this very crudely to help folks understand, and I'm not an economist, but we've had one on that echoes this. Uh, we talked to Hadass here. But raising interest rates is a tool to tackle too much demand for not enough supply. It's a tool to decrease the amount of money in the system. But if that's not the issue, then decreasing the amount of money in the system is not going to help. What if instead of that, the issue is actually that we just went through a pandemic that massively shifted spending habits? What if supply lines have been massively disrupted? What if there was a European war driving up energy prices? What if 50% of the increased prices in consumer goods are going straight to profits, not towards the production of goods? Well, then raising the interest rates would not fix any of those problems, and that is the situation that we're in. And yet the Federal Reserve continues to raise rates. It's almost like there's an ulterior motive, disciplining labor. And it's also the case that inflation is decreasing for the last seven months straight, and with no b bad side effects for workers yet, amid their onslaught of higher interest rates, for seven months straight, the inflation rate has decreased, and the unemployment yet has the unemployment rate has continued to fall or stay steady. Jobs continue to be created. I mean, even if, even if you think that the Fed has a role to play there play here, there is everything to be said for a cautious and judicious approach that is respectful 
of the precarious position of working people. And that's not the approach that the Fed is taking right now. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Um, let me get that. We are taking the, the only measures we have to bring inflation down. And putting 2 million people out of work is just part of the cost, and they just have to bear it. Will, they, will, will working people be better off if, if we just walk away from our jobs and, and inflation remains well, 5 let 6%? Me, let me ask you about what happens if you do this. Since the end of World War II, there have been 12 times in which the unemployment rate has increased by one percentage point within one year, exactly what you're aiming to do right now. How many of those times did the U.S. economy avoid falling into a recession? You know, it's it's not as black and white as it very, Just very Just looking at the numbers, it actually yeah, no, is no. pretty black Alan and Bliner's white. written a book on this. And, there have and, been 12 times that yeah. we've seen a one-point increase in the, in the unemployment rate in a year. That's exactly what your Fed report has put out as the projection and the plan based on how you're going to keep raising these interest rates. How many times did the economy fail? to fall into a recession after doing that out of 12 times. I think the number is zero. I think the number is zero. That's exactly right. There have been 12 times that the unemployment rate has increased by one percentage point in a year. And every single time. So just, just think about this. Think The unemployment rate increasing by one percentage point, she, she says that's two million workers out of work mm. that is i mean right this is that in and of itself is is something that you're really gonna have to justify to get me on board with it right you're really gonna have to justify putting two million people out of work that in and of itself is bad enough and that is explicitly the goal of the fed is to bring unemployment the unemployment rate up by uh one percentage point in the next year that's their goal that's what they want to happen. And it's interesting, too, because the logic is more or less if we punish enough people, they will be buying less stuff and therefore demand will go down and the prices will go down as well. Um, I don't think that's going to work. The historical record seems to indicate that's not going to work. So. But even, What's it really about then? Yeah. But even beyond the 2 million jobs, the historical record shows that every single time that his goal has been accomplished, there is a recession that follows that, which means millions of more people are out of work. Millions of more people have to take pay cuts. Millions of more people have to take other sacrifices at their workplace. Healthcare cuts, retirement cuts, all this sort of stuff. Beyond just 2 million people being out of work. I mean, just a, a total, total ghoulish behavior here. Um, I, I don't understand it. Well, I mean, I do understand. They want to discipline labor. They want to discipline labor. They think that working folks are getting too uppity. I mean, our wages are still rising more slowly than inflation. The idea that workers have too much money is an absurdity. It's just absurd. Right. And and I'm sorry, but they have yet to prove the case to me that 
it would be worth it, even if even if by some chance this were to work, which there's literally no reason to believe it will work. And by work, I mean, you know, reduce the inflation the way they're they're proposing. Even if this were to work. I mean, how many millions of people have to suffer for that to be the case? I mean, it just. Yeah. And obviously, as working people. We're against inflation. Like, right. no, none of us want to see the prices go up. But, but that's not because our wages are going up and they're just having to keep up. No, that is a hundred percent. Well, I don't want to say a hundred percent. Obviously, there's a lot of factors here, but corporate price gouging is a huge, huge yeah. part of this. The pandemic and um, the war. All these things, and then the inflation itself, right? That becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because now you can say, oh, it's that inflation. Yep, right. that's why we jack prices up 10%. Right. It's that darn inflation. Everybody else is going up, so we do too. Uh, and it just starts rolling and rolling that way. But I think companies, particularly in industries that are heavily monopolized, which are more than a few, uh, we have you know, the meat industry, for example. Meat prices have gone through the roof. Mm. And the meat industry is heavily monopolized. It's just a handful of companies that control the whole damn thing. There is just, you know, there are alternatives to punishing working people to fix inflation. It's just, uh, it's an absurd, false dichotomy that, you know, Jerome Powell is putting out there. And as far as I can tell, the president of these United States... You know, the Biden administration has no uh, no qualms about it. Yeah. I haven't heard anything. And as you've made the point on the show before that at least Trump in the past, like if Jerome Powell is doing something he didn't like, he would call him out for it. Yeah. So I can only assume that Biden is, has no problem with it or he's just, you know, as as Democrats often do, they are respecting the office. <clears throat> Civility. Respecting the independence of the right. Federal Reserve. Uh, civility politics. And yeah, well, on the Institutions. West. On the West Wing, they sure wouldn't say something. So yeah, uh, yeah we're going to let him do his thing. But it's. Uh, and and that, that's why I mentioned it earlier when we were talking about Alabama's budgets. Okay, great. Mm. The budgets are looking good this year. But when the head of the Federal Reserve is telling you in plain English, we are going to drive up unemployment. And right. if you check our record, we are going to create a recession. That's kind of a big deal. Yep. Yep. Uh, last thing for today, the uh, this this was uh, the last bit of TV that we got last week from the U.S. Senate. Uh, there was a there was a hearing on the East Palestine derailment that I would encourage folks to watch. Uh, and we pulled uh, Bernie's interactions with the Norfolk Southern CEO, um, and we're going to be reacting to it. But it's worth noting that 30 minutes before this started, a train derailed in Alabama. So, and infinite content, I saw your text that you, that you sent uh, to us this morning about that. And it's, <laughs> I mean, the, I, you know, this really shows the how 
poorly they have set these these titans of industry have set up this system, how illogically and irrationally they have organized production. 30 minutes before a massive, massive event for the company, a train in Alabama derails. Luckily, nobody was hurt. Luckily, there weren't any chemicals on board this train. But this is something that happens three times a day. Over a thousand times a year, trains derail in this country. And, uh, and obviously this is due to the workforce cuts, the precision scheduled railroading, the refusal to upgrade uh, braking technology, all of these corporate, corporate tactics to increase profits at the cost of everything else. So let's let's listen to this exchange between Bernie and Alan Shaw, the Norfolk Southern CEO. Um, Mr. Shaw, you indicated in response to a question from the chairman that you quote, I'm committed to doing what's right, end quote. Well, I think all of us are committed to doing what's right, but the devil is in the details. Uh, Mr. Shaw, Wall Street, uh, about a decade ago, in order to increase the profits they were earning in the rail industry, uh, implemented a program called Precision Scheduled Railroading. Uh, the result of that is that Norfolk Southern reduced its workforce by almost 40% over six years. Uh, meanwhile, in fact, Wall Street's goal was achieved uh, profit soared for uh, Norfolk Southern. You made over $3 billion in profits uh, last year. Uh, I have been told by workers in, who work for your company uh, and other rail companies that they are now being asked to do more work with fewer workers, and that includes safety inspections. So well before this disaster uh, in East Palestine, uh, we have been told about the potential safety hazards. Will you make a commitment right now to the American people that you will lead the industry in ending this disastrous precision scheduled railroading, which has slashed your workforce and made railroading much less safe? Yes or no, will you make that commitment? Senator, I understand your concern, <clears throat> and I share that concern. If you'll permit, I, I have a couple points on that. I became C. You know, they sure struggle with yes or no questions. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. In May of last year. Ever since that point, Senator, we've been on a hiring spree. The number of employees at Norfolk Southern today is 1,500 more than it was this time last year. I, I, you'll forgive me. I don't mean to be rude. We just don't have a whole lot of time. Yeah, I understand that. But you will not deny what you're trying to do is rebuild from the massive layoffs that took place. My question back to you again. Wall Street, not the industry, imposed this on the industry. Wall Street said we're not making enough money. Cut workers, cut workers, cut workers, even if it endangers safety. My question to you, very simply, sir, will you lead the industry in doing away with precision scheduled railroading. That concept. Senator, in December of last year, <laughs> I charted a new course in the industry. 
And I said we're going to move away from a near-term focus solely on profits, and that we're going to take a longer-term view that's founded on our engagement with our craft employees who are so critical to our success. We were the first to pivot out of it. They're so critical. They're so critical. But they don't deserve sick days. All right, well, let me jump in again. I apologize for cutting you off here, but <laughs> when you talk about your employees, the entire country, I think, was shocked to learn a number of months ago that your employees, rail workers, who work in dangerous, a dangerous job in all kinds of weather, had zero uh, paid sick days. Now, I know that is beginning to change, but I would ask you, given the fact that Norfolk Southern provided $10 billion in stock buybacks recently, can you tell the American people and your employees right now that in order to improve morale in your workforce, that you will guarantee at least seven paid sick days to the 15,000 workers you employ? I do know you've made some progress. You increase paid sick days for some of your workers. Will you do what most Americans think is pretty obvious, that when you get sick, you get guaranteed paid sick days? Will you make that commitment right now to your entire workforce? Senator, with our latest agreement with our employees, which included a historic 24% wage increase and access to premium health care benefits, we immediately pivoted to talking to each of our local... I, I do want... I've been deeply involved. I introduced the amendment on the floor. I know the issue. But what I'm asking you right now, you provided paid sick days to some of your employees. I got it. Thank you. Will you now do it? What most America, what we get here in Congress, our employees get sick, they get paid sick days. Will you make that commitment right now to guarantee paid sick days to all of your workers? That's not a radical demand. It really is not. Will you make that commitment, sir? Senator, I share your focus on our employees. <laughs> I will commit to continuing to discuss with them important quality of life issues <laughs> with our local craft colleagues. In all due respect, you sound like a politician here, Mr. Shaw. It's not a deal. Paid sick days is not a radical concept in the year 2023. I am not hearing you make that commitment to guarantee that to all of your workers. Clearly, we should have that for every worker in America. I'm not hearing that commitment. Will you make that commitment, sir? Senator, I, I'm committed to continuing to speak to our employees about quality of life issues that are important to them. All right. Well, I'm chairman of the Health Education Labor Committee. We look forward to having that discussion. Uh, <laughs> one last issue. You talked about Senator, covering... Senator Graham, uh, rather, uh, Senator, um, Senator Graham is waiting to ask it. So, uh, Bernie, if you just keep it really brief. Right, last question. Uh, you talked about covering the needs of the people of East Palestine. Does that include paying for their health care needs? All of their health care needs. Senator, we're going to do what's right for the citizens of East What's right is to cover their health care needs. Will you do that? Everything is on the table, sir. Thank you. That's... Uh I mean, Bernie is great in these, and uh, obviously CEOs are terrible. Um, yeah, he could not answer a question to save his he life. Didn't, he didn't answer straightforwardly any question that Bernie asked him. There wasn't a single time that he answered a question.
in that exchange. That five minutes. Right. I'm committed to, to discussing. talking about quality of life issues. What a snake, dude. What yeah, snake. seriously. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's um, it's good to see that kind of like interrogation at the highest level, uh, whether or not there's going to be, you know, some real accountability to follow this. I don't know. Um, a couple of things I wanted to mention on this is that um, the NTSB has opened a special investigation into Norfolk Southern's uh railway safety practices and culture and that could be a big deal um it got that from rwu the rail workers united and according mm -hmm. to them they said it's apparently unheard of for the, the national transportation safety board to do an all-out investigation into the inner workings of a corporation like this yeah. you know they may do it for a specific wreck a specific incident but this seems to be a broader investigation of Norfolk Southern, you know, top to bottom. So there's some potential there to really, you know, dig in and, and find some facts and figure out what's really going on there. You know, but as with all these things, it's one thing to investigate. It's another thing to, you know, to prosecute or to, yeah. to actually act on the information you find out. Because we already know enough to know there's some problems and there are right. regulations that could be enacted uh, without Congress that could be done. There are things that Congress needs to do. Um, but wanted to pass that on and, and also mention also from RWU, they passed a resolution recently in support of safe train length and braking. Mm. So they are really, if you're at all interested in the rail issue, um, follow RWU. And, yep. you know, you can sign up for their email newsletter. It's very easy. Uh, they'll get you plugged in. And, you know, I'm sure they'll appreciate, you know, your support. Uh, but also it's it's good to stay posted and see kind of what's going on. And, and they are really in the forefront of calling for a safer rail system, uh, a, a rail system that actually does right by the workers involved. And a rail system that is, you know, positive for our communities, not negative, not toxic, not destructive, but, you know, could actually be beneficial. So yeah. if uh, Norfolk Southern CEO, he says he wants to do the right thing and everything's on the table, we'll do what RWU is asking you to do. Yeah. It's that freaking easy. And, you know, while Bernie is asking, you know, real questions about the, you know, the health and safety uh, and the assurance that that is made provision for, for the workers and for the community, um, Ohio Senator J.D. Vance mentioned in his opening statement, and I didn't pull this clip, but he said that, um, he said that, this community was a little too white to get help. And just the idea, and you know, so. Wow. It's. You know, just so divisive. To yeah. Even, yeah. To even put that out there. And also, um, has he heard of Jackson, Mississippi? Right. Yeah, right. Or. or Flint, Michigan? Yeah. yeah. Seriously. Just, uh, yeah, yeah. There are people right now in Jackson, Mississippi are having their rights deprived. They can't count on clean water supply. Uh, you know, the state legislature and the governor there is doing everything they can to strip power from 
their elected officials because by God, they're not going to let black voters have some say over their own lives and community. Yeah. Uh, so we definitely uh, just came across a story recent, uh, a good interview recently regarding what's going on in Jackson. That's something we may need to cover here mm. uh, in the next couple of weeks because yeah. uh, it's very relevant. Also echoes sort of what we've seen with Birmingham and the way in which Alabama state legislature has, um, you know, tried to take power away from the local level. Anytime cities uh, and local governments are, you know, starting to elect progressives starting to take progressive measures, the reactionary state government, whether it's Mississippi or Alabama, steps in to try to stop the progress. Yeah. And that's going to be it for us this week, folks. We appreciate your time. Went a little long day, but we had a bunch of good stuff. Yeah, we had a lot on the agenda today. And uh, y'all don't forget that Shop Talk has debuted. Um, It started this past Thursday. Had a few kinks, you know, getting things going. Um, all in this, all by myself here in the studio, but we got it up. Uh, don't know that the podcast is out just yet. Should be out the no, next couple days. I think it's out days. on a Monday. Monday, I think it's when we're shooting. For. So you can check out the live stream on YouTube. Uh, like I said, it may take you a couple minutes into the stream before we we were up and running. But uh, really, want you all to check out Shop Talk uh, every Thursday morning, and as we said earlier, check out TVLR.FM. I'm working on several stories that uh, are going to be good. We had a couple good ones already up there, so check it out. Yep. See you next week.